uh, things, which means that lots of little changes are taking place. Uh, one of them being uh, this morning, um, how we're going to approach things. If uh, you're a guest with us today and you take one look at that outline and you see there are 27 different spaces to fill in, uh, you might be a bit overwhelmed. Uh, well, I'll speak to that in a few minutes, but um, that's not the norm <laughs> for you. Uh, but we have begun our uh, study of Romans together. And uh, hopefully most of you were able uh, this week to participate in the uh, devotions. Um, there are, uh, you should already have the second week of, of devotions in your notebooks. Um, today when you leave, there are two um, more devotionals for the, for the third and fourth week of this month. So I encourage you to pick those up. Uh, we'll have them available throughout the, uh, the month, but if, if you take them and put them in your notebook, you'll have all four weeks um, put together. All right? So uh, they'll be out in the, the Welcome Center. We'll make sure that uh, they get put out there for you uh, at the end of, of the service today. We also are memorizing uh, Romans chapter 8 together as a church. So, would you all stand as we quote together Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. All right, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Memorized. <laughs> okay. Um, we'll see how we do, right? We have a whole month to work on this, guys, so let's, don't get too concerned. But let's begin together. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set is free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Is that right? Romans 8, 1 and 2, that's right. Okay, thank you. But do not be seated yet, because we are now going to go right into the reading of our text for this morning. And it's going to come up here, and we are going to read it in unison. Okay? I know that's not normal for us, but uh, the words are going to come up here, and we will uh, say them together uh, as a church this morning. It's part of our desire to, uh, to have that sense of oneness and, and unity. So let's have verse 1. Read it together in unison. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, 
to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, God's word to us today. Please be seated. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, as we read these words, we are humbled. How can we take these words written by this giant of a man and take them to ourselves? How can we expect that you would care for us, that you would love us, that you would call us, that you would make us saints that is beyond our ability to comprehend? And yet, the words are there. Words not only spoken by Paul to that church at Rome, but through the power of the Holy Spirit incorporated into the Scriptures and through the Scriptures brought to us today in our day, in our generation, in our lives. And we are humbled that you should care for us in such a way that you would pass those words so precious to the people of that day and pass them on to us with just as much passion and just as much grace. We thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for the songs that led towards these words, that brought us to that place where we we marveled at the love that the Father has lavished on us as he has called us to come to the altar and has placed in our hearts this longing for Jesus to come, not only off in the future, but to come now into the midst of this place to be the Lord, the Master, but also the Savior, the giver of life, so we bow in your presence today, knowing that we have no standing, no right to come into your presence in anything that we have ever done or ever will do. And yet, we are told that we can come with boldness before the throne of grace. Because the gospel of God to man, through Jesus Christ, has awakened faith within us that we might receive that life. Oh, how marvelous these truths are. And yet, Lord, each of us have come this morning from different situations. I think of Julius this morning letting us know that there's some kind of family emergency that is keeping him from being able to to come and, and be with us today. And there are those, Lord, who are sick this morning. I think of Barbara having spent a whole month pretty much unable to function. Your strength has brought her here this morning. And Pam going through the chemotherapy and into the radiation and 
and, and the things that she has to face has faced with the surgeries. And Lord, all of those we would not be able to face on our own. But as we read these words today, and as we see the promises that you have before us, these weaknesses of the flesh, these problems that we face, they only remind us to say more often, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. And the sickness and the deaths and the violence of this world as you prepare for us that place where we will spend eternity in your presence. And yet at the same time, as Paul says elsewhere, and yet out of necessity you have us here. For what reason have you left us on this earth? It is not to make money. It is not to own property but that we might live out the gospel. And through that gospel, our lives might be changed. And as our lives are changed, people will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, be drawn to you. And that is our calling. Yes, to go out with Sean and those who, who will be joining him on the streets of this great city to take the word of God out of the four walls and into those streets that some might hear and perhaps believe. But that we too, in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces, that we too might have that passion to share the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of faith, in him that brings life. And not only here, but all around the world, as, as Paul says in this passage, to all the nations, as our missionaries go forth, give them strength, give them words of wisdom, give them understanding of your truth, and give them fellowship that they might not react as Elijah did by saying, I and I alone but to know that you have thousands who are praying for them, upholding them, and asking you, O oh God, to minister through them as they sense your presence. Let this be what the church is about. Give us minds to remember as we memorize. Give us hearts to long for you as we do our devotions. Give us the ability to comprehend when it comes to the theology that's being taught in the Sunday school so that all together, when we gather in these, the larger meetings, that we, having prayed together throughout the week, having loved one another, that we might be ready to receive your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all week long, hopefully, we have been reading and reflecting on these seven verses from Romans chapter 1. 
These seven verses serve as an opening greeting to this whole letter, which we're going to be examining and looking at in detail for the next 16 months. It's sort of like the opening of a formal letter that you or I might write as a, as a business letter for people. What are the parts of an opening to a formal letter? Well, let's think about that. I don't know if you were trained. We're in a, this uh, era of emails that just, you know, we don't even worry about punctuation. We don't worry about uh, spelling. We just, you know, send it out in a tweet and an email or, or whatever. But there is a formal structure that we are taught or should have been taught in how you do a formal business letter. So let's think about that. You would have, at the beginning, your name and title, followed by your address. So, Pastor Chris Gardner, Metropolitan Baptist Church, 1624 84th Street, Brooklyn, New York, 11214. Now, that would be at the top, and then below that would then come the person or business to whom you're writing and their address. So if I was writing to the Baptist Convention of New York, I would say Baptist Convention of New York and have the rest of their address underneath my information. And that would then be followed by one of two things, either to whom it may concern, if you don't have a specific person, or the, uh, the person that you're actually addressing, in this case, uh, Reverend Terry Robertson, who is the uh, executive director of um, the Baptist Convention of New York. So this is, this is how we do a formal letter. Well, when Paul is writing this letter, he is doing the same thing, only he's not doing it as we would in English today, but he's doing it as it would have been done in that first century, the writing of a formal letter. So verses 1 to 7 follow that format of a first century formal letter. And in doing that, it, number one, it identifies who the author is and any titles um, that go with that, including the authority they have to write that letter. And that's what we see in the opening verses here that Paul does. The person or organization the letter is being sent to would come next. Right? And then it would end with some kind of a greeting, usually a one-word greeting. Take your Bibles and uh, flip with me to the book of James. All right. Now, what we're going to see in the book of James, in that opening of the book of James, we're going to see what a basic formal structure would be. And then we're going to contrast that with what Paul gives us. Right? So the book of James, this is exactly how 90% of the formal epistles uh, epistle being a formal letter, this is how they would start. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have his name, and you have uh, his, his, his title or his authority, right? He's a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then his audience to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, and the single word, greetings. Now, that's 
90% of the formal letters of the first century would have started like that. Now flip back to Romans and look at the this difference that you see between those two. Right? You still have Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, that's the same as what uh, James says, called to be an apostle, that's his authority, that's his, his, what he can do, set apart for the gospel of God, and then you have this lengthy sort of explanation of what that means. And that goes all the way down through, uh, uh, all the way down to verse 7. And then in verse 7, he comes back to that formal structure and he identifies the audience. And then instead of the word greeting, it's grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what I'm going to do this morning is I am going to uh, work our way through this. Now, every sermon that I'm preaching on Romans is not going to have the details of what we're looking at uh, this morning. But as Paul uses this format, he transforms it so that as a church, as a people of God, we comprehend that we do not live in this world and do not follow the forms of this world because we live in a greater kingdom. This morning, then, I want us to just bask in the wonder of what is found in these few verses. Those of you who sat in the, the Sunday school this morning as, as Sean taught, you heard the, the power of the theology of what is the gospel. And all of us who have read the devotions this week, We've seen some of the practical aspects of these verses. But this morning, I want you to become enraptured by all that this passage promises us. For as the theme from this passage indicates, the message from God in the opening to Roman contains hints to all that the gospel means. In these few verses... Paul is opening up our eyes and our wonder. Now, there's two ways that you can approach this this morning. I've given you an outline. On that outline, I believe there are 27 spaces to fill in. Now, you can, you can do that, and that's awesome. The other thing that you can do is just sit back and just be overwhelmed by all that this passage teaches. Either way depending on your personality and, and you know, how God speaks to you, you can use either of those two approaches this morning. So we come to the first point. This passage begins with the person giving God's message. Who is this person? It is Paul. We see it in verse 1. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul takes and gives us his name, and then he gives three descriptions of who he is. Number one, he was a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, before we, we 
open up what that means. I want you to think about the Apostle Paul, what you know about him. We know more about the Apostle Paul than we know about anybody else in the Scriptures except for Jesus. We are given more biographical and autobiographical information about Paul, both in the book of, Luke, or, or book of Acts and then on through Paul's own epistles. We have a really good understanding of, of who this man is. Well, let me ask you maybe some of those things that not everybody picks up on. Did you know that Paul was the valedictorian of his class, this theological class? Paul says, I was head and shoulders above everybody else. Nobody could touch me in terms of academics. I just spent a week down in North Carolina for my first classes for my doctoral program. Right? We're all sitting there together, all these um, pastors and the two professors. Okay. If Paul was sitting there, the rest of us would have shut our mouths. <laughs> we wouldn't have said a word. We would have been overwhelmed by what he knew in terms of the scriptures. And yet he tells us in Philippians 3 that he was the head of the class. Did you also know that uh, Paul experienced the same thing that John experiences in, in Revelation. When he says, I was taken up into the heavens, I was brought up into the heavens, Paul tells us that he too was taken up into heavens and he heard things and saw things that he couldn't even describe to us, that, that, that he, he couldn't even express to us what it was that he saw. This is, a, this is the man that, God is using to speak to us this morning. And then, did you know that he once beat up Peter? Well, maybe not physically, <laughs> uh, but he did. I mean, you know, the, the way I describe it is, is you know, Peter is, is spreading a little heresy in the church, and and, and Paul walks up to him in front of the whole church, grabs him by the collar, slams him up against the wall, and says, Paul, or Peter, you're teaching wrong. Let's get this right. I don't know. We've always pictured Peter as a big dude, right? The fisherman and everything. And Paul is a little short guy. But that's what we have here. This is the man that God used to bring forth this word to us in the book of Romans. And all those other things that we learn about him. But what is most important, as far as he is concerned, to give the authority to be able to write these things, are what we find in verse 1. He was a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant. Those of you who, who studied the devotions this week, you know that the word servant, doulos, is the word a love slave. A, a slave, it's a normal word for slave, but Paul is, is adding to it his own sense of 
himself. He sees himself as a bond servant, a slave who, who belongs to Jesus Christ because the Lord had purchased him with his own blood. His time, his talent, his treasure, it all belongs to Christ. And every Christian should see ourselves in the same way. We are a slave of Jesus Christ. Everything that we have belongs to him. He also considers himself to have been sent by Jesus Christ. He says, I am a servant of, a servant of Jesus Christ. Since Paul belonged to Jesus Christ, then the Lord had every right to tell him what to do, when to do it, and how to go about it. He says he's a slave of Jesus Christ. When he's talking about it, it's important to recognize that that every part of the name, whenever Paul writes, if he says he's the Lord, if he says he's Jesus, if he says he's Jesus Christ, he's the Lord Jesus Christ, For Paul, each of those meant something different. The Lord, that is, he is the eternal son of God. He is God himself. Same in essence, same in power as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If he says Jesus, he's talking about the humanity, the one who emptied himself and became a man and and came down here and was tempted in every point, just like you and me. And if he says Christ, he's talking about the union of the one who is both God and man, now elevated, ascended into heaven. When Paul uses Christ, he he includes the concept of Messiah of the Old Testament, but he goes far beyond that to focus our thoughts on this one who is now fully God, fully man, united, two natures, in one person. The third way that Paul identifies himself in this passage, he says that he was separated for the gospel. He says, I'm called to be an apostle. Called by God, set by God, separated from others. None of us can really ever say that we're an apostle in that sense that Paul is. Paul is saying that his calling that God has given to him is unique. He is separated from the world. He is separated even from the church in that uniqueness. Paul was equal to the original 12 apostles. He says, I was was an apostle born out of time. But he spent the same amount of time with Jesus Christ as those original 12. They spent three years with Jesus, right? Jesus walking here on earth with them 24-7. Paul says that he went off to Arabia and he spent three years even being lifted up into the heavens to see the glory and the wonder of God and to sit at the feet of Jesus and to learn from him. Same amount of time, just different location. Paul, an apostle, separated for that purpose with all the many gifts and talents that he had. When it came to serving Jesus Christ, the most important role that he saw himself in was to be an apostle. He didn't choose 
what he was going to do. He didn't choose the ministry that he was going to accomplish. He didn't take a spiritual gift test to find out what he should be in terms of ministry within the church. Though spiritual gift tests, we give them and, and we see them as valuable. But Paul didn't have to do that. God had called him and set him apart. He listened to the Holy Spirit who had called him to be an apostle and he lived that out. But I want to ask you a question. What did God set you apart for? And I'm not talking about ministry in the church. What job has God set you at? Paul's job was to be an apostle. You might be called to be a teacher. You might be called to be a mother in the home. You might be called to be a a maintenance person. You might be called to be a salesperson. What has God called you to do? You see, you should not be in your job because you want to make money. You should be in your job because this is what God has set you apart for. This is where he wants you to serve. So when Paul says this, that I've separated, called to be an apostle, we should be asking ourselves, what has God called me to be? What is my job in this world? No, I'm not called to be an apostle in the sense of all capital letters, apostle. But I am called to use my gifts, talents, and abilities where God wants me. What does he have me doing? Are you seeking to know the Lord's direction in your life? Or are you simply seeking to have money come into your home, own property, and those kinds of things. There is a fourth description, though, that he gives, and that is that he is set apart for the gospel. Set apart for the gospel of God. You see, Paul understood wherever he was and whatever he did was to be done for the glory of God. Being set apart for the gospel meant that God had commissioned him. But all of us have that same commission. We are all set apart for the gospel of God. We may not be the apostle with a capital A, but we all belong to God, and therefore we are set apart for the gospel to serve Jesus Christ with our whole being 24-7. We are to be living the gospel just as much as Paul was called to do that. Which brings us to our second point. You see, the person who has brought us the gospel message is Paul. He is a servant. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. But let's turn our thoughts to the priorities that are given in God's message to Paul. And we see those in verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. We've moved from verse 1 to verse 5 because, in a sense, what we find in verses 2 to 4 are explanations of the gospel. So verse 1, if we take out the explanation of the gospel, we have verse 1 flows then into verse 5. And so Paul, in this, 
these verses 5 and 6, Paul is going to tell us what, this is my job and here's the priorities that come with that job description. But those same priorities that he's given, again, come back to you and to me. He begins by defining the source of the gospel and his call. He says, through whom we. Through whom we. Wait a minute. Who's the we? Paul's writing this on his own. It's Paul who's the apostle and all those things. And yet in verse 5, he says, through whom we. Paul wants us to understand that what is true of him is also true of you. What he is about to share is not some personal information, but it is the message of the gospel that all of us must know, we all must live, and we all must share. God is the source of everything when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our service in his kingdom, and Paul is not unique in that. God is the source of the call on your life. He is the one that gave you life. He is the one who calls you to life, and he calls you to live out this gospel through whom we. Because God is the source of the gospel, He provides the supply of the gospel through grace. God supplies what we need to do, what he has called us to do in the gospel by grace. Through whom, he says, we have received grace. He is not talking so much here about the grace of of forgiveness of sins, what we often think of the grace of salvation. For by grace, you have been saved. That's the way that we often think of grace. But no, grace is everything that God has done and everything that he is doing is a source of all things. The fact that we have air to breathe is the grace of God. The fact that we have a 63-degree day outside today is the grace of God. The fact that we have anything is the grace of God. And Paul lives out this idea that everything, including what he has and his abilities to accomplish the task that God has given him as an apostle, it all flows out of grace. The grace to be able to carry out our calling in Christ Jesus, our life in Christ Jesus. God is the source of our calling. He is the supplier of the grace to accomplish our calling. But Paul also wants to know that God is the sender for the gospel message. Have you ever thought of the fact that your job, whatever that job is, whether you are a stay-at-home parent or whether you are going out to do that, that your job, that that is God's call? that God has placed you there, that he has sent you there, how then are you living out the gospel in that? How are the people around you seeing Christ in you in that? He has sent you to accomplish that. 
And that's what Paul means when he says he's received grace and apostleship. God has given him what he needs and has sent him out. God never commands us to serve him without supplying all that is necessary. But also God never saves us to sit on our butts. We used to have wooden pews here. So I used to say, God didn't save you to dust the pews. You know, you slide in, you slide back out. Well, it's kind of hard to do that on uh, padded pews. But God didn't save you to come, sit here on a Sunday morning, and then go home. He wants you here, but God has far more in mind for you. Whether you're a full-time Christian worker, or whether you are a Christian who's a full-time worker. The fourth thing we see, though, that God has the right, in terms of priority, to do this because God is sovereign over the gospel. You see, as, as Paul is thinking about his call and, and what God is, is, is having him do, even in the writing of this book, he realizes that he will stand before God and give an account for what he writes. God is sovereign over everything. God has given him the grace to carry out the ministry of apostleship in order, he says, to bring about the obedience of faith. Remember the Great Commission. When we talk about the Great Commission, it comes from Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. The Great Commission is, is what God has, has called every Christian to, to orient their lives about. And it says we are to go and we're to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. Well, we always leave that part out teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. God is sovereign. That means He is the ruler. He is the Lord. And everything that we do must come in line with what our sovereign says to do. The goal of the gospel is not to get people saved. The goal of the gospel is to bring people under submission to the sovereign God so that they might live out His glory in the midst of the world. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. The gospel brings us back into service for God and to God, living it out for His glory. There is a fifth priority that he has. The motive for sharing the gospel is in the significance of that gospel. What is the significance? He says, which is for the sake of his name. Paul's commission as an apostle, your commission as a Christian. We have the same supreme motivation for why we do what we do. The name that is above every name. That at his name, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue, whether in the heavens above or on the earth or underneath the earth, that they all will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. You and I 
We have the greatest privilege of any human being on the face of this planet, no matter what their job is. Because you and I, we work for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Go work for the president if you want to. Go serve a CEO of, of the biggest company in the world. If God calls you to do that, then do it. But remember, you're not working for them. What we do in this world is for the sake of the name, his name, his glory, his power. No one has a higher calling than that. And where? Where are we to serve? What is the sphere of the gospel? He says, it is among all the nations. You know, I, I really think that this is an area where we fall short. Think about your life. Think about how you think about your life. You see, the vast majority of Christians have this mentality that says, boy, I wish I worked for a Christian company. You know, I, I wish I was like the pastor. You know, I could be in the church all the time. I have to go out there and to, to, to listen to the language and the stories that are being told and all that garbage out there. Oh, if I could just get away from that. And, and what does this say? This says, you, pastor, you're a lousy Christian because you're in the midst of God's people most of the time. Get outside, out into the sphere where there are those who need to be brought under the sovereignty of God, who need to know the name. It is the message of the gospel to be among all the nations, or as Jesus said, go make disciples in all the nations. Doesn't mean you have to become a missionary. It does mean you have to become an evangelist. It does mean that if we are going to call ourselves the people of God, then we need to be those who so are enthralled by who he is that we cannot be silent about it. We will not shut up about it. I don't know if any of you are interested in football. There was a dramatic event that happened yesterday. The Baltimore Ravens lost to the Tennessee Titans. Totally unexpected. Everybody expected Baltimore to go through and sweep out everybody. And they lost by a good deal. I think it was 28 to 12 or something like that was the final score. You and I, we're the Tennessee Titans. The world thinks that the church is just, you know, something that's going to be walked over on the way. Let's go trash them. Let's go out and say, you know what? I'm going to live for the glory of God no matter what happens in this world. Out there in the midst of the fight where the battle is tough, and I'm not going down. 
after having done all, Paul says in Ephesians, after having battled temptation, battled Satan, battled the world, after having done all, we stand. The gospel is not for one ethnic group, one economic class. It is for the world, the world that God created, the people that he wove together in their mother's womb, no matter what continent they're born on. Acts 8.1 tells us, yes, we have a responsibility in Jerusalem. We have a responsibility to our Judea and Samaria but we have a responsibility to the ends of the earth as well. There is a seventh priority that Paul sees in all of this. Ultimately, God calls us to surrender to the gospel. Not just to surrender to the new birth, to be born again, to be saved, but to accept the call that he has given to us so that we might live it out. Paul says, we have received. That's very important. God can call, and then we can quench the Holy Spirit. He says, we've received. The greatness of God's work in our lives to open our eyes so that by faith we see Jesus Christ, we understand the gospel, and that gospel has taken a hold of us and has awakened us and has given us life. To stop that by saying, well, my life's too busy. You know, I, I really would like to spend more time in devotions, but, but you just don't know what my life is like. I've got so many things pulling at me. It, it, it's crazy. We are to surrender to the gospel of God so that no matter what else we have going on in our life, there is one center to it all. Remember Dorothy and the yellow brick road? Remember the, 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 the spiral that goes out, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it goes off? Well, ours is the opposite of that. There are lots of roads in our lives that are coming from all different directions, but there needs to be where we see all of those things coming into that one central point, the gospel of God through Jesus Christ to us as human beings by faith in him. Those are the priorities that Paul saw for himself, but by saying we, Paul is saying it's the same for you as it is for him. Point number three, when we recognize the priorities and the service that God has set us apart for in ministry, we need to understand that the ministry is always the proclamation, the proclamation given in God's message. Verse, the end of verse one, on through verse 4. For the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, 
who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that, my friends, when you read that, you ought to be shouting hallelujah. It ought to just sweep over you how great and awesome this is. It's the responsibility of the people in the Sunday school to teach you the theology of that. So I'm not going to focus on the theology of this passage, but it is rich and it is deep. Understanding the the dual nature of Jesus Christ, which is what drives the gospel, is powerful. And doesn't it make you want to tell people? Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to Jesus Christ, descendant of David, proclaimed to be God's Son. Ah! What power is in those few words? The proclamation message that we have been given in this gospel, whether it is an apostle or a pastor or a banker or a salesperson, a counselor, a mother, a student, whatever it is that you are doing, It always has to do with the proclamation of salvation that's given in the gospel. Paul tells us that his being a servant, called an apostle, set apart, has one one main reason for it, and that is it is set apart for the gospel of God. If you are not proclaiming the salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to lost people then ask God to provide you with the grace necessary to do that. To want to share the good news. This powerful message of hope and truth. The gospel of God. But you don't need to be fancy in how you do that. You don't have to to go off like I did for this past week to sit amongst seminarians studying. All you need to know is the scripture of the gospel. You see that in verse 2? The gospel of God that was given to us beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Jesus didn't come up with fancy words when he was facing Satan in the midst of the wilderness. He just quoted the Bible. Memorizing the word of God. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is hidden in our hearts so we might not sin against Him. To know the Word of God allows us to be able to stand against the wiles of the enemy. It also allows us to have the authority to share the good news of the gospel of God with the people around us. As you get to know God's word, you will become less afraid of sharing the truth with the people around you. The gospel flows from Genesis to Revelation. The more we know the scriptures, the more we'll be able to declare the truth of those scriptures. The subject of the gospel is Jesus Christ, who is the Son of Man. The Son of Man in the Gospel. 
We read about it in verse 3, concerning his son who was descended from David. The beauty of the gospel is the one who is our savior, is an individual who dealt with life the same as you and I have had to deal with it. Born as a baby in a manger. Growing up, as the scripture says, growing in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man. Jesus may be the last Adam, but he wasn't created the same way Adam was. Adam was created as a full-grown human being. Jesus had to go through the growth just like you and me. Flesh and blood, tempted in every point, like you, like me, yet without sin. But he's also fully the Son of God. The Son of God in the Gospel is stated for us there in verse 4, who was declared to be the Son of God in power. You know, it's easy to think of Jesus as the baby in the manger, the guy who who walked on this earth and did the miracles and, and those kinds of things, even the one who died for our sins on a cross and who rose from the dead. It's easy to, to think of him that way, but he is so much more. Before becoming a human being, he was the eternal son of God from eternity past, lived eternally with the Father. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Same, in essence, in power as the Father. Through the resurrection, God declared, yes, this is my son. He is my heir forever and always. Which brings us to point four. We know who is sent. We are. We know the priorities of being sent. All those seven priorities that Paul shares with us. We know the message is the gospel of God. The message that we are to share as we go. But now we come to the description. Who are the people that are given God's message to take to others? People that God has given a message. Remember the word we. Paul, we. What is said of Paul is said of us. Look at verses 6 and 7, where it describes us. Including you, okay? See, I'm not making this up, that he's talking to you and to me. Including you, he says, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. These truths are not for Paul alone. They are for everyone who names the name of Christ. For all those whom God has selected by the gospel to believe. Verse 6 reminds us of those truths when it says, You who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is not about the invitation that goes out to the whole world for them to be called to believe on Jesus. This is those who God has called 
to be alive as he did Lazarus when he said, Lazarus, come forth. God has called you alive in Jesus Christ. If you've been called into life in Jesus Christ, then all that Paul is saying has to do with you. You're called to be a slave, to serve God, to share the gospel. All of us have been selected by God to become his messengers in this world. It's also important to recognize that while all of us who are Christians are included in this, yet God speaks to us specifically as those specified by the gospel as we see it here in this text. He says, the letter is to you? No, he says, the letter is to all who are in Rome. To all those in Rome. What is, what is Paul saying? That this letter is only for them? No. But what he is saying is that God speaks to you, to me, to us as a church, and he speaks to us where we are at. What Paul addresses to the church at Rome is different from what he addresses to the church at Corinth, or the church in Ephesus, or the church in Philippi. It is, a, it is the same message, but different application of that message. Yes, Paul calls, or God calls Paul to be an apostle. And so that's different from what he is calling you to be and what he's calling me to be. Yes, we have different application, but the message of the gospel is still the same in each of us. So God speaks to your heart differently than he speaks to mine as I'm reading this and as you're reading it. Throughout the week, as you read the scriptures, God's Holy Spirit is going to speak to you in a way that speaks differently than what it's going to speak to me. And that's going to be true of all of us. Because the Holy Spirit knows what you need to see. And he is going to address you through his word in specific ways, if you're a believer. But God has people in all the nations. In every century, He still interacts with us personally. Personally as individuals and personally as a corporate body here at Metropolitan in ways that are different than even those in Manhattan. We can take this message of Romans and realize that God is speaking to you as a Christian, speaking to us at Metropolitan, not just generally, but specifically. That's the power of the gospel. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That's a privilege of receiving a calling from God because it means that we are secure in that gospel, if he has called us alive in him, we are secure in this gospel because he is speaking to us specifically as those who are loved by God. There's a popular saying amongst Christians that God loves everyone. 
That's not a very accurate saying. It really isn't. And it can be a dangerous saying to say that God loves everyone. I often hear that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. No, he doesn't. God hates sinners. God is going to send sinners to hell. The Bible says that we are enemies of God. We are alienated because of our evil behavior. Because we are sinners. We are alienated from God. We are his enemies. And if those sinners don't repent, if they don't listen to the gospel, we can't even say, God, have mercy on their souls. What a privilege. What a joy it is then to know that God has set his love on you. His wrath by which you were forced to come face to face with your sin drove you to the cross so that God could lavish his love on you The uniqueness of the message of the gospel is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in doing so, opened up our understanding of the wrath of God in a way that we would never have understood otherwise. And seeing how we responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ drives us to our knees. Mercy on me, a sinner. And the Father reaches down into the depths of the murk and the mud of our lives, and he lifts us up, and he cleans us up, and he bestows upon us the clothing of sonship, and he puts the ring of the air on our finger, and he throws a party in heaven. And he says, this is my son whom I love. Don't undermine that by saying God loves everybody. Understand the depths of God's love for those who are his is so powerful that we want everyone to experience it. You will not be driven to share Christ if you do not understand that. That they can't be loved by God unless they trust in Christ. Fourth characteristic of the people of God is that they are saints. The saints by the gospel. Called to be saints. The word saint means that we are set apart as holy to God. You're a special vessel. You are prepared for godly use. Truly a unique, special people, specifically selected by God 
and securely sealed in him by his love, set apart, holy, as a vessel for his use, a saint. Let's wrap it up by looking at the end of this passage, and we see the promises given by God's message in the second half of verse 7. Here's where Paul changes that bland greetings and transforms it for us. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is more than just a nice way of kind of wrapping it all up. If Paul wanted just to kind of, you know, all right, I need to put a greeting in here so we can get to the meat of the passage, he would have just said, eh, grace and peace. Instead, this is a powerful statement. It begins with a surprise of the gospel. That surprise is the word grace. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It is nothing that you or I deserve. And we pass over that word so quickly. We, we treat it as, you know, just one of those common everyday terms. But stop for a minute and consider what is grace? God, out of the abundance of his nature, has poured out on you and me all so many blessings that are totally undeserved. God has given us grace. We're going to look at this in detail later on, so I don't want to open it all up now, but just that word that says, loved by God is grace. Let the word grace be to you an amazing thing, amazing grace, how sweet that sound. Let that wash over you today. But equally powerful and surprising is the safety of this gospel when it comes to our relationship with God. It's described in the second of those words, grace and peace. And peace. Just what that means, we'll understand more when we get to chapter 5 of Romans. But those words ought to bring tears to our eyes. We have peace with God. We who were enemies of God now have peace with God. We deserve destruction. We have peace with God. The armistice was signed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we have peace with God. What is the source of the supply of the gospel of grace and peace? It is found in the significance of that little word, from. From. We throw out greetings so flippantly. How you doing? What's up? Hello. Be blessed. Just kind of flippantly are said. When we say those things, we don't really mean them, do we? For the most part. We're not really asking how you're doing. We're not really saying, I want you to be blessed by the God of the universe. 
We just toss them out. Paul could have just done that. Grace and peace, you know, let's get on to the meat of this. But he doesn't. It matters where that grace and peace come from. And where do they come from? They come from the Savior of the gospel. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes a difference, all the difference in the world, where it comes from, what the source of it all is. The Savior who has given us new life. Grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The eternity of heaven, the, the, the richness of a heavenly Father, the inheritance of being the beloved Son, they're all poured out on you and they're poured out on me. And that ought to amaze us. Just overflow us with this truth. Sweep us up in the wonder of it all. This is not some opening to a very important letter. This is the very important letter to us. This opening, Paul sets us up to understand and prepares our hearts for the message of hope that we are going to run across as we look through this book. And so in conclusion, I just wonder, have you understood the vastness of the wonder of God's message in the gospel? A message to you, to me, specifically, as well as to us as a church. Whenever you read any part of the Scripture, what I have said here this morning is true in every part of the Scripture. As we work through Romans, we won't be able to dissect it like this. But every word is palpable. It speaks to us. Nothing is wasted. Have you understood that truth as you read this week five times or maybe more those first seven verses? Even the opening greeting of a letter like we have here is like nothing else in the whole world. May God open our eyes to see the wonderful things in his law. Let's pray. Oh, Father, speak to us today. We are your church. Oh, we sometimes may not look like it. We may struggle to be that church. But the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Everything flows out of that truth for the glory of God. Let your word be the power of the gospel, both to us and through us, to those around us, as we live out what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.